Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 163, The French Revolution, part one. So begins phase four of our series. Phase one covered 1607 to 1677. Phase two took the narrative to 1763, and phase three continued up to 1789. Phase four will go to 1815, with the close of the War of 1812. It's going to be an incredibly exciting period to cover. After years of going back and forth between London and the Americas, due to our divided narrative, it'll be nice to finally leave Europe behind for a while and really focus on the United States. So of course, I'll be opening this section of the narrative in France. The French Revolution has a good claim to be the most significant political event in world history. Its shadow has dominated the centuries that have followed, never mind what it was originally like at the time, and working a way through it would be one of the greatest challenges that the newly formed United States would face. The Bourbon France that allied with the United States against Britain disappeared, becoming the first French Republic, and then the Empire of Napoleon. In a nice bit of symmetry, this period of European history also closes in 1815 with the Battle of Waterloo, and the Second Bourbon Restoration. As we cover the Washington administration, and then those of Adams, Jefferson and Madison, we're going to need to be familiar with what is going on in France. Therefore, we're going to start this section of the narrative with a brief detour of France, from 1788 to 1800. Not too in-depth, believe me or not, I am going to restrain myself and keep this high level. Right, let's begin. The French monarchy was broke. Not broke as in broken, although with Louis XVI at the helm, you could argue that too. They had no money. The treasury was empty. Raising funds had been difficult for years. The taxation system, if it can even be called that, was a tangled mess inherited from the feudal era, including such factors as noble privileges to not pay tax. While the crown could spend, only the estates general could raise national taxes, and this body had not been called since 1614. Raising funds was something done by regional parlemols. They raised one-off levies, but wouldn't commit to anything more long-term without reform to the taxation system. So, while France was wealthy, it struggled to raise revenue. This was the situation when France launched an expensive adventure across the Atlantic to embarrass Britain into losing some colonies. The minister who was making inroads into the financial situation, Turgot, was dismissed in 1776. He would not support intervention in America. Loans were raised, but loans had to be repaid. By 1788, the state was deep in debt. The Estates General was finally called to meet in May 1789. The Estates General was composed of three estates. The clergy were the first, the nobility were the second, and the third estate was for the commons. The Estates General voted by estate. The first estate represented about 1% of the population, the second estate represented about 4% of the population, and the third estate represented the other 95%. You will be unsurprised to know that members of the third estate did not think that this was fair. In December 1788, the Minister of Finance, Jacques Necker, announced that the third estate would have double representation, but that voting would still take place by estate. The Abbe CS 
published a famous pamphlet called What is the Third Estate? It included the line, What is the Third Estate? Everything. What has it been until now in the political order? Nothing. What does it demand to be? Something. In May 1789, the deputies of the Estates General met at Versailles, and it did not get off to a good start. The king insulted the third estate by not formally welcoming them, as he did the first and second estates. On the first day after the formal opening, the third estate immediately refused to meet separately from the other estates, and brought proceedings to a halt. While this was going on, the country needed strong leadership in a moment of national crisis. This was when the king's eldest son and heir, the Dauphin, died. King Louis was devastated, and was not ready for the storm that was coming. Eventually, encouraged by the Abbaisiers, the Third Estate decided to meet separately from the other estates. A few days later, several clergy from the First Estate decided to join this new body, which soon named itself the National Assembly. The First Estate voted in favour of joining the Third Estate in the National Assembly. The next day, on the orders of the King, the meeting hall of the Third Estate was locked. Instead, the deputies met on a nearby tennis court, where they swore to not separate until they had created a new constitution for France. This was the tennis court oath. Two days later, the National Assembly met in a church with much of the clergy and two nobles from the Second Estate. Louis XVI tried to halt the situation by invalidating the National Assembly and instructing the estates to continue to meet separately. Within a week of this, a large group of nobles, led by the Duc d'Orléans, had joined the National Assembly, and the King reversed course, recognising the Assembly and ordering the clergy and nobles to attend it. At the start of July, the National Assembly reconstituted itself, becoming the National Constituent Assembly, and it created a committee to start producing a new constitution. The King dismissed Necaire as Finance Minister. Unrest grew in Paris, and on July 14th, 1789, a large crowd stormed the Bastille to claim a large amount of gunpowder. The next day, Jean-Sylvain Bailly was named the mayor of Paris, and our old friend the Marquis de Lafayette was appointed commander of the newly created National Guard. Necker was reinstalled as finance minister. Over late August, a number of rights were proclaimed, including the freedom of religious opinion, the freedom of speech, and the declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen a document mostly drafted by Lafayette. In early October 1789, a protest against the high prices of bread became intermixed with political reform and became the famous Women's March on Versailles, which invaded the royal palace and forced the monarchy to relocate to Paris, along with the National Constituent Assembly. Throughout the rest of 1789, 1790 and into 1791, the Assembly continued remaking the French government. There was much tension with the church, particularly over the civil constitution of the clergy, which was condemned by the papacy. There were many figures, such as Marat, who argued that things were not going far enough, but also those scared at the pace of events. Much of the aristocracy fled the country, and in June 1791, the royal family attempted to do the same. This was the flight to Varennes, so named because the royal family were caught at Varennes before they made it to the French border. They were brought back to Paris. Later in the year, the constitution that was being created was finally adopted. France was a constitutional monarchy. The National Constituent Assembly disbanded, 
with a new Legislative Assembly taking its place. It was decided that members of the Constituent Assembly couldn't be elected to the Legislative Assembly, which, as you will see, produced a more radical body. Although initially a monarchist was elected as the President of the Assembly. Meanwhile, a slave uprising broke out in Saint-Domingue, France's lucrative Caribbean colony, and the European monarchies started to make serious noise about whether they needed to intervene. Three new national armies were established, and a call was put out for volunteers. In April 1792, the French decided to preemptively declare war on Austria and invade the Austrian Netherlands, but the war did not go well for the French. The Austrians invaded France and warned that the royal family should not be harmed. Public opinion turned decisively against the royal family. In early August, Georges Danton took over the government of Paris and formed the Paris Commune. The next day, the royal palace was raided, the guards massacred, and the Legislative Assembly suspended the authority of the king. They ordered the creation of a new government. The next day, a new executive committee was created, with Danton as justice minister. Arresting suspected enemies of the revolution was legalised, which was followed shortly by the creation of a revolutionary tribunal, done at the urging of the Commune and Maximilien Robespierre, the leader of one of the more extreme factions of the Jacobites. A national convention was summoned to replace the Assembly. The convention met for the first time in September, where they would abolish the monarchy and proclaim France a republic. Meanwhile, there was a reaction against the convention. Lafayette went into exile, and royalist rebellions broke out around the country, most notably in the Vendée, although they did win a victory against the Prussians at Valmy. At the start of December, Robespierre demanded that the king be put to death, and a trial began. In January 1793, the convention voted that Louis XVI was guilty of a conspiracy against public liberty, and narrowly voted in favour of the death penalty. He was beheaded by guillotine. France continued to become more diplomatically isolated in early 1793, with the convention declaring war against England, the Dutch Republic and Spain, while royalist insurrections continued. In April, a committee of public safety was created by the convention to be the executive of the government. It consisted of nine members, including Danton at the beginning. A fight started to break out between two factions in the convention, the more moderate Girondins and the more extreme Mountain. Initially, the Girondins had the advantage, but this was opposed by the Paris Commune, which backed the Mountain. The Commune and the Mountain launched a coup d'etat, seizing the convention and the Committee of Public Safety. The Girondins were arrested. Revolts broke out around France against the convention, including notably at Lyon and Marseille. In August, Robespierre was elected president of the convention, and a levée en masse was voted for, conscripting all unmarried and able-bodied men between the ages of 18 and 25 into the army. In September, the convention voted for a law of suspects, which allowed arrests and speedy trials of enemies of the revolution. This is the point which begins the reign of terror. The convention had been busy. Alongside all of this, they had been involved in opening new museums, trying to deal with economic problems, often failing. They adopted the metric system, they created a new republican calendar, and the commune closed churches and places of worship in Paris. Louis XVI's widow, Marie Antoinette, 
was executed in October. Retribution was made against the cities that revolted when they were recaptured, and France continued its march toward the extreme. Many of the Girondins were executed, along with the former Duc d'Orléans, now known as Philippe Egalité. More moderates were expelled from the convention, and then, at the close of 1793, the French managed to recapture the important port of Toulon, thanks to a successful operation led by a young officer in the artillery. Napoleon Bonaparte. That's where we'll end things for the moment. We'll pick up the French Revolution in 1794 next time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Mm-hmm.